millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi there again and welcome to the Explaining History podcast. I've done a, f- a few things over the, the, the last couple of months um, which are a slightly, a, a slight deviation from the way I've, I've done this podcast for, for many, many years. Uh, and it doesn't mean to say that this is the new format, but I think it's it's important sometimes to, to kind of go in a slightly different direction. You know, normally the format for this podcast has been where I've, um, you know, looked at somebody's somebody's writing, you know, whoever that might be, um, and and really kind of helped explore it and look at the context of it and what they're arguing, what they're suggesting, and sometimes we hit some amazing books. And I always try to pick a good one, uh, and occasionally you have to look at something that's that's, that's not so great, but that, that's kind of the way I've always always done things. Um, but uh, partly due to time constraints, partly due to just wanting to, to talk about things in a slightly different way, um, I'm, I'm looking at this slightly more conversational format, which I, I hope you'll like. Um, and there are there are a number of things um, that I, I I have often talked about, kind of railed against, and and wondered, and particularly my. One of my particular area interests is areas of interest. Sorry, is the the question of historical memory, how and why we collectively remember things in the way that we do, and what bearing that has on kind of a, objective reality, and the the kind of um, rut. I think the historical rut. I think that um, what you might describe as kind of Anglo America. Is is stuck in, and generationally might be stuck in for the next couple of decades to come, 
is the the kind of the, the memory of the, the the second world war in america this kind of memory of the, of the the greatest generation in in britain the the memory of um, of the few of the uh, the spitfires that saw off the Luftwaffe over the South Downs and the um, Londoners and uh, people in the Britain's big cities enduring the Blitz and the the, the the bombing of Britain's cities and the the heroic evacuation of the British Army the British Expeditionary Force at Dunkirk. These things hold a, a powerful, deeply emotional grip over public imaginations. Wherever you go, there is something similar. People in virtually every country in the world have a, um, a narrative that defines their country. It is a narrative often, almost always based in some kind of exceptionalism. Um, and it's powerful and it's emotive and it's generational and transgenerational and it, it helps to answer the question of who we are we are the people who had this happen to us we are the people that triumphed over that we're the people that did this good thing survived that terrible thing and that means we are a particular sort of people um, our national character is kind of like this or oh, and a lot of this is assisted myth making a lot of this is the product of propaganda at the time a lot of this is the product of war winning measures at the time and a lot of this is the product of post-war storytelling if you take the example of great britain the um, iconic photos of the um, taken by the Ministry of Information during the war. Um, I think it's a classic photo of uh, somebody delivering a milkman delivering milk after the Blitz. Well, you know, staged and staged for a particular reason because it was meant to resonate with a particular aspect of British society and culture that. Um, whatever happens we can in, we, we can endure this we can ensure that life goes on as normal we can show that that um, we are not affected by the um, uh, the the kind of the predations of Nazism and that we are able to kind of uh, be to show our own kind of reserve our own sense of of, of, of Britishness our own little bit of kind of eccentricity, our refusal to engage in kind of defeatism or drama. It's a, it's a way that British people, I mean, I make broad brushstrokes here, that it is a way that it is believed that British people like to think about themselves. Whenever you uh, make broad statements that British people think this, American people think that, Dutch people think this, or Chinese people think that, well, you know, you're... It, it, it's doubtful that you mean everybody it's um uh, and and probably when you get down to it all assumptions are are wrong and offensive but often see the way in which propagandists work is they try to tap into a thing they assume that particular populations like to think about themselves as the the great myth though and Jeffrey Wheatcroft wrote an incredible 
um, article, one of these long read articles in The Guardian, um, quite a long time ago now. I think it was, um, um, you know, about five or six years ago. The, 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 the great myth, though, is the idea of the good war, that the Second World War was the good war. If you look at it from a very narrow Anglo-American perspective, you might be forgiven for thinking that. It is, without question, the uh, Nazism is the great evil of the 20th century. Um, Stalinism and Maoism is, is kind of like a photo finish if you consider that um, in... This in the in the, the late nineteen fifties to early nineteen sixties, um, Mao's famines killed um, potentially. I mean, figures vary, but potentially as many people as were killed in the entirety of the Second World War. You get a sense of uh, kind of how how monstrous uh, Maoism turned out to be. Um, so I mean stats you know you, you can read a variety of books on Mao's, uh, Mao's famines and they range from uh, you know, 40 million to around 70 million dead and some figures put that up to beyond 120 million um, so it, it kind of depends who you ask but an enormous an enormous toll of, of, of human misery but the um, the binary kind of uh, division between um, a, a liberal democratic um, Western allied um, alliance of firstly Britain and France and then after and then France falls in the summer of 1940 then after Pearl Harbor Britain uh, and America on one side and Soviet Russia on the other uh, against this genocidal racist um, uh, eliminationist kind of monstrous militarism of Nazism and its kind of hanger on powers in uh, allies in um, Italy, Vichy France fascist Hungary uh, and um, a, a variety of other kind of client states uh, there seems to be at first glance no kind of no argument that this was the good war it was the war fought against this this ultimate of all evils and yet we don't live in star wars we don't live in a world where binary moral oppositions such as good and evil uh, function in, in that way the 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 kind of the last great proponent uh, of this was, in fact, George W. Bush. Um, there's a really good book by Peter Singer called The President of Good and Evil, which points out that uh, George W. Bush used the language of uh, good and evil um, uh, post 9-11 more than any other president uh, has done. And I, I imagine probably has done probably no American president has done since. Even Trump, I don't think so. Um, and that um, kind of simple... It, it created sort of simple binary oppositions in the war on terror, um, which, you know, conveniently for the neocon agenda negate the complexities of... Um, 
of, of, of you know decades of Middle East politics uh, and give uh, you know uh, American uh, voters an easy answer to the question of well why do they hate us it's to do with, you know, good good and evil which of course um, is hard to dispute when somebody flies a plane into the World Trade Center that they have committed a, a, an act of evil um, but obviously the the reasons for wars and conflicts are are far far more complex than that the reason Jeffrey Wheatcroft cites which is um, so fundamental that against the idea of the second world war being the good war is that the second world war is all overwhelmingly fought against civilians the um the majority of the casualties uh, of people who died in the second world war uh, from the cities of london through to um china the philippines um, the um, the famines that grip part of Asia, um, the Holocaust, obviously, uh, the millions of Soviet citizens who died, the, the starvation of the citizens of Leningrad. This was a war fought against civilian populations. The 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 soldiers who died, and airmen and sailors who who died, um, are dwarfed by the numbers of civilians who died. Um, the you could say well a a war that is fought to end the the kind of the, the tyranny of Axis powers you know, murdering civilians well that is uh, morally justifiable okay sure yeah but if you um, the the kind of the, the 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 Allied bombing of Germany again was a fought a war fought largely against civilians. Um, whatever moral sense you want to make of that, it starts to question this this kind of um, this notion of the Second World War being the the good war. If the 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 the, the kind of the easiest comparison to make um, is against the the First World War, um, the First World War being this kind of in Europe, this fixed war of position involving trenches and no man's land and barbed wire and gas and all, all these kinds of things. The great um, catastrophe that is burned into the imagination of um, the British after the First World War um, and that kind of informs uh, politicians, diplomats and military planners is the first day of the Somme where about 50,000, 57,000, uh, I beg your pardon, 54,000 casualties um, happened, of which about 19,000 were fatalities um, in, in one day of fighting. Um, the, the rest of the Somme campaign obviously consumes far, far more um, uh, soldiers. Um, the, the the numbers of uh, of British and Imperial war dead in in the First World War come over to uh, come to a, a little over one million. Obviously, these are far bigger numbers than uh, the loss of life in the the Second World War. Um, the um, the loss of life in the Second World War for, for British soldiers is, is significantly, and, and Commonwealth soldiers is significantly lower. But th that 
kind of gives us the you know if if you're looking at it, at it from a British perspective, or from um, a, a uh, the perspective of somebody who existed between the wars, then that sort of gives a kind of a skewed idea about um, uh, about the Second World War and. Uh, um, if we look at it from a kind of a global perspective, which in, indeed I think we should, where we're looking at um, the, the 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 loss of life and the the kind of the destructiveness, um, the Second World War, the Second World War's kind of um, uh, development of military power, aircraft, tanks, artillery, and and, and mass bombing, and then finally nuclear weapons. Um, these were all kinds of innovations that that flowed from the, um, the 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 First World War. The uh, military planners um, looked to air power to prevent the kind of the disasters on the battlefield happening again. They looked to uh, modern tank technologies and strategies to prevent a, a war of position in uh, Western Europe from happening again. And by the summer of 1940, Germany um, and uh, is able to demonstrate the, the, the use of kind of rapid armour in aircraft in uh, blitzkrieg strategies to ensure that the, the Low Countries and France uh, fall fall rapidly, this in turn st- um, kind of confounds part of Stalin's strategy. Stalin was hoping that a war of position would occur on the Western Front, um, that it would grind Europe um, down in war for long enough, uh, several years. He hoped that he would have the opportunity to rearm and and defend Russia. Um, So the the First World War uh, and the Second World War exist in a a kind of a dynamic relationship with one another. Um, It's not a kind of a a controversial um, sort of claim. Eric Hobsbawm comes out with this one. that what existed from 1914 to 45 was a kind of like a 31-years war with a kind of a, a brief interlude in the middle. The most recent proponent of this uh, in his amazing book, Blood and Ruins, is Richard Overy. Richard Overy's basic argument is that um, you have from 1914 uh, to 18 a war of European empires and then... It's during the from nineteen eighteen to nineteen thirty nine, you have an attempt by the two remaining European empires to kind of reinforce their positions and to grab as much territory as possible, and to kind of survive the the kind of the, the post war economic fallout as best they could do, and then you have these new kind of competitor states in the guises of Japan, Germany and and Italy looking to um, seize imperial territory, seize territory for themselves um, and to become essentially new rival empires 
it's easiest to see that in uh, when we, you look at Japan and and the Second World War. Um, Japan's attempt to build its co-prosperity sphere in Asia at the expense of the the the, the British, Dutch, and French empires, uh, and to and kind of in the case of America, um, the Americas protectorate in in the Philippines, and. Um, this is uh, something that is, uh, you know, in, in in the eyes of um, Japanese nationalists at the time, both kind of liberal and fascist, the idea that Japan should be the kind of the the leader of Asia and should somehow contribute to this kind of mass liberation of Asia, um, that this this would be um, J- Japan's role. So Overy argues that you have. Um, a uh, this war of unprecedented violence isn't a war of good and evil as we imagine it it's not a good war it is a war of empires it is imperialism's war um and unfortunately not imperialism's last war um the result is that the insurgent empires japan italy and germany are destroyed um extinguishing the the last kind of gasps of the uh, Anglo and French empires, which within two to three decades of the end of the Second World War have vanished, um, but creating a new kind of um, uh, a new um, empire in the guise of the Soviet Union, which colonizes uh, Eastern Europe um, and a variety of other kind of parts of its periphery places such as like Azerbaijan um, and then and then uh, the United States of America which with its unofficial empire its undeclared but evidently their empire manages to um, uh, dominate world trade and diplomacy for the next half century and there are um more so than uh, more more so than kind of um, than previously at the moment, there are debates about the the kind of the rise of the BRICS uh, nations and the limitations to uh, America's hard and soft power. Um, some of which I think is probably overstated. America's hard power is still far in excess of the, the next half dozen rivals put together um, and the idea that America could probably fight a war on, on mul- multiple fronts again if it needed to I think is in, entirely plausible um, but um, that, that, is, that is kind of speculation but the, the fact is that America was a, a, a kind of a country that is uh, born of a supposedly kind of anti-imperial sentiments and there's all sorts of accounts during the Second World War of resentful um, American generals all the way down to private soldiers thinking what on earth are we doing fighting a war to help Britain hold on to its empire um, and America manages through its need to control world markets and its need to control um, its access to world trade and its need to establish itself as the world economic hegemon um, constructs its own version of um, imperialism 
um, in the second half of the 20th century, an imperialism that right-wing historian Niall Ferguson has often described as essentially kind of benign and um, that America is this kind of um, world policeman that ensures that... um, the 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 functioning of a world order happens as it should do in terms of the rules of world trade and access to sea lanes and all that that kind of thing which is no no doubt the case but obviously when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at bluenile.com you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imperial rule has meant... um, imperial wars such as Vietnam and Iraq and support at the moment for the genocidal crimes of the Netanyahu regime Um, but let's not kind of get sidetracked from our our, our central thesis here the the second world war um, is is a war that um, cannot be defined through the prism of the kind of the Anglo-American gaze when you have programs, I mean, the, the most recent one is Masters of the Air, which, uh, you know, I've, I've seen a bit of it and it looks absolutely phenomenal. But it, this is a way of telling um, the, the the story of um, Anglo-America's war. There are obviously war stories told from Soviet, Chinese, German and other perspectives um the um uh, 1990s version of Stalingrad which I think is uh, Wolfgang Peterson um uh, is is a is a classic example of that and the, the series is Das Boot uh, which I think they've they've revived recently sure these these um tellers um about those perspectives um um the um Sam Peckinpah um, movie Cross of Iron again another another kind of classic classic example but we are you know global culture um, which is kind of led by the the sort of the Anglophone world for for, and has been for the the last 
half century um, sees a, a kind of a, a particular version of, of the wartime experience and it's it's an, an anglo-american one um, the, this is this is very very narrow this is very very limited um, and the 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 idea that that's that that's kind of what the war was is 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 highly misleading there's a classic um part of tony judd's memoirs um when in conversations with timothy snyder um caught from the book uh, thinking the 20th century tony judd obviously a british jewish um intellectual and, and historian talks about the experience of growing up in post-war london um as a, a, a british jew um and talks about how there were boys who had either come over on the uh, to escape to britain on the the kinder transport or who'd had relatives who had um uh, survived the holocaust or there were um uh, eastern european uh, boys who he knew to the jewish community who'd come to live in britain as refugees after the war and they described their wartime experience. They heard other boys talking about their dad's wartime experiences of being in the desert with Monty or in, you know, at Dunkirk or in the jungles of Burma. Um, and the, the, the kind of the alienating reality of saying, well, my dad's wartime experience is that he was kept in this really dark, terrifying place in the middle of Poland that you've probably never heard of. Um, it just gives you that that perspective that um, the once again this this was a war that was fought primarily against civilians, but it's also um, a, a, a war where the the kind of the the the, the, the narrative is is the, or the the narratives that are available in order to understand and navigate uh, this 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 kind of long historical process are hugely diverse um, and we we have heard kind of but a, a sort of a sliver of that the popular understanding of the Holocaust for example was that was very very limited the first recognition um, that popular recognition in Great Britain that something truly terrible had uh, or, or the truly terrible things had happened in the Nazi Germany, far far worse than anyone could possibly have imagined. Um, there were all sorts of you know the the knowledge of kind of the uh, Gestapo and uh, Hitler's sort of authoritarian measures and anti-Semitism were well understood um, in uh, British newspapers before the war. Death camps were and and sites of mass killing were not widely understood by the British population uh, until the end of the Second World War. But the first evidence that British uh, the British population saw was the Pathé newsreel of Bergen-Belsen, uh, or not, not Pathé, in fact, actually, it was BBC newsreel of Bergen-Belsen, um, narrated by uh, the, the veteran germ, uh, journalist uh, Richard Dimbleby. Um, it for for American audiences or non UK audiences, um, particularly if you're listening in the United States, 
um, Richard Dimbleby during the Second World War was the kind of figure that, say, Walter Cronkite was during the Vietnam War. He's, this is the the, the, the the trusted voice of the establishment, the person who you, you listen to. Who, um, he narrated it, these scenes which I think haunted him to the end of his life from Bergen-Belsen. At no point in the, the newsreel was the word Jews used. And this was this was a deliberate omission. Prisoners, yes, but not, not Jews. Um, and at the time, it was considered to be too incendiary. There were Churchill and Roosevelt, um, both Tony Judd and Timothy Snyder have uh, wrote this extensively. Churchill and Roosevelt were well aware of the anti-Semites that existed in Britain and America. And it was always a kind of a risky undertaking and uh, gave the Oswald Mosleys um, of the world uh, a, a free pass if it was suggested that the Second World War had been fought to liberate the Jews or to help them in any way. Um, this is something that kind of opportunist anti-Semites um, understood that they could use in order to kind of weaponize and say, oh, well, look, we were tricked into this conflict against our our neighbours in Germany who had done no wrong really um, because we had, um, you know, Jew, Jews had sort of, you know, conned us into this. If you can just, just imagine the sorts of things, the, the, the sorts of kind of lies that fascists come out with um, and um, Roosevelt and Churchill were very, very kind of conscious of this um, and it was... Um, important to to kind of downplay in a way anti-semitism and um and to kind of uh ignore um as much as possible what the germans had what the nazis had done to the jews um not entirely but um the british public um were, had a kind of didn't quite have the understanding of it that it that it does now. Another reason for um, not deliberating too much or not focusing too much on the the question of the Holocaust at the end of the Second World War was that um, British uh, people, uh, the British public, at the end of the Second World War, had a a sense that the war had been about something, that the war had, had a particular narrative. Again, it was a, a kind of a, a triumph of good over evil, of, of freedom over tyranny, and that the war's sacrifices had had to, to mean something, and mean something particular to the British public. You will no doubt find a version of this everywhere you go. Um, the, 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 the version that the Second World War the, has in um, uh, the Soviet Union, uh, the great, great patriotic war, um, negates huge inconvenient facts about the Molotov-Ribbentrop Molotov Pact that lasted until 1941 and the uh, various kind of failings of Stalin from 1941 um, onwards. Uh, that led to the devastation of Russia um, 
and the um, terrible acts such as the Katyn massacre of Polish officers um, who were taken prisoner by the Soviets um, and the um, Soviet Union's decision to stand by and let Warsaw be raised to the ground to destroy the, the, the Polish opposition. All of this is is kind of um, uh, sort of airbrushed from the narrative, uh, and instead you have um, the, uh, the 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 country who comes back from the brink of defeat um, to destroy the ultimate evil of of Nazism, and the fact that you have uh, Soviet soldiers liberating Auschwitz uh, and other of uh, other of the death camps in in Poland is kind of testament to uh, to that fact in a way that's is, is the way in which the narrative the historical memory of the second world war uh, can can easily easily be shaped um again in um in America the the historical memory of the second world war kind of be- begins with uh, for the most part um the um uh, the, the the attack on pearl harbor and um america's kind of entry into uh into the war and ends with um this idea of kind of the, the greatest generation uh having returned liberty to to the world and you know if if only if only it were that simple I mean, it's a little. I know it's a little shooting fish in a barrel um, to uh, or to kind of um, point out our sort of shared delusions about uh, about the war and, and and the past. But I think it is really important to do so um, because when we cling to these sorts of kind of naive ideas about this hugely, hugely complex and violent and destructive period in in world history we allow ourselves to sort of import some of these kind of uh, notions in into the present um, and it help and, and we allow that to kind of inform how we we sort of navigate the present moment um, if you uh, want to kind of look for any kind of an example of, of, of that, um, the one of the kind of the key kind of moments in the Brexit campaign was um, Nigel Farage and various other sort of fraudulent characters sailing a flotilla of small boats down the River Thames. Uh, in in London, and everybody of a kind of a certain age and a certain mentality in Britain knows what that symbolises. The the kind of the eva- the small boats that supposedly they actually didn't, but that's a whole other story. That uh, that it helped. The British to escape from from Dunkirk, the British Expeditionary Force. Um, the flotilla of small boats um, was a, a kind of a, a a PR myth. There were some, but they acted normally as a taxi service from the beaches to get men onto warships 
which were the, the it was the Royal Navy that brought the British Expeditionary Force home. But when you're trying to swing a, a referendum to take Britain out of the European Union to retransform it as a kind of like a a a, a, a right wing dominated state to kind of asset strip, who cares? These are simply just the means of tapping into powerful and emotional uh, ways that people in Britain and kind of people everywhere else have of navigating the past in order to explain the present and somehow magically predict the future, a future that we can all try to imagine where you know these wonderful values that we once had in or supposedly once had in the 1940s can help to navigate ourselves through the complexities of the 21st century well uh, good luck with that so um the in, instead of this kind of binary opposition between good and evil we all we have um a, a, an axis uh, in, you know, in, in the imperial predations of, of axis powers which lead to wars, famines and genocides which are, you know, by any moral stretch any, any stretch of the kind of moral imagination are, are naturally evil and they are opposed by a, a, a British empire that had and to, that had been born of slavery that had um, been born of imperial conquest that had subjugated and created famines across India and there is a United States who uh, whose racism flowed so deeply uh, that um, its army was segregated it's black soldiers treated as second-class citizens and its model of kind of expropriation of land that was carried out in the uh the mid to late 19th century the destruction of the plains indians um and the uh colonization of the great plains was hitler's model for what should happen in russia so it's not to suggest for a moment, and I don't actually believe this, that Britain and America were as monstrous as Nazi Germany. No, I, I don't think so. But what I do think is that we're not really talking about good guys and bad guys. We're talking about the operations of empires and empires going to war with one another for resources um, and empires are inherently monstrous things um, and the people, the human beings that get in the way of empires are the ones who tend to be wiped out in the most, most brutal and monstrous of ways and so the Second World War or the 31 Years War from 1914 to 1945 is a war of Empires. It is the it, it is a global conflict of empires that ends only with um, nuclear warfare, um, and nuclear warfare becoming such a risk to humanity that great powers are uh, unable or unwilling to go to war with one another again. And what you find is that for the rest of the twentieth century, 
great powers are able with impunity to go to war against minor powers or lesser powers um, and that uh, post-colonial wars happen between decolonized states so my my kind of great book recommendation there are several i've talked about in this podcast but if you're looking for something really comprehensive um to read get blood and runes by richard overy it's a fantastic read and it sets out a really really meticulous thesis um i couldn't recommend it enough anyway i'll catch you on the next explaining history podcast this has been a slightly longer one today but there you go um take good care all the best and i'll catch you next time bye bye deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.